The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, and that is Sue Kalinske. Sue Baloo, how you doing? I'm good. I'm remote in North Hollywood at my friend's house while I sit here and edit our documentary. Yeah, this is the one about Silver, right? About Silver Saunders Friedman, yes. Yeah, very nice. And how far along are... And by the way, live from North Hollywood is exciting. Uh, where, uh, where are you in the process of doing the documentary? We are putting a sizzle together, so um, we're very early stages in editing, but we're basically at this point, we're, we're pulling selects, we're pulling pieces of interview and pieces of live action and, you know, pictures and video. Cool. What best describes this video, uh, this, this, this documentary to make people want to be interested in seeing more? So That's how long real. is a sizzle reel? Um, it could be anywhere from like two to five minutes. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's exciting. I'm excited because you've been working on this for such a long time. I want to let people know A. Martinez is going to join us uh, from Morning Edition and up first on NPR in just a couple of minutes. Been a friend of mine for years and years. Actually, he and I worked together during the early part of my career. Uh, the Mason and Ireland show back in the 90s, which is just crazy that it's been that long. So, uh, yeah, and you're going out of the country, huh? I'm going to Cabo. Cabo, nice, nice. Pure vacation, no camper. No camper. <laughs> not you taking know, the camper see, to Cabo. Some places the camper just does not go. <laughs> <laughs> so you, yeah, before we get to A, you had, a, you had something you wanted to throw out there. So I want to get your take on this. I read that Robert De Niro is going to be doing a series of ads for Uber as Travis Bickle. Yes. I think it's bizarre. Yep, I do too. <laughs> um, now, do you think he needs the money? Well, that's what? an interesting question because... I understand, you know, using a recent character in some sort of commercial situation, but this is a character that is iconic from what, 1975 or 1976 or whenever that was, you know, you've got the Mohawk and you've got the, you, you talking to me, you talking to me, all those famous, and apparently he's going to just mine this stuff and use it in some sort of commercial way. Well, now that he's what, 80? Yeah. To hear him say, you talking to me, is it that he doesn't hear? He doesn't he, hear. You talking to me. <laughs> or he doesn't understand. You, you talking or, to me. Or or he's like, you talking to me, and he's looking around because he doesn't know where it's coming from. <laughs> I mean, it just it just seems so ridiculous to me. It seems desperate. Now, yes. I here's the weird thing about him. So he's got a very unique career because he's making paycheck movies. I think he's made like five or six of them in the last five years. But he also did... Uh, the uh, 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 the movie uh, with Leo that's coming up. Uh, oh yeah, I know something of the Flower Moon. Why, why do I not know that? Yeah, look it up. The uh, the it's, uh, it's Scorsese Scorsese movie. movie. Yeah, with Leo. Uh, so he's still doing like quality stuff, but he's also cranking out a lot of crap. And I tend to think because he's got many children, including one that's a baby. I think right now, right. I think he's hard up for cash. You know, it's just bizarre. It's just it is. Bizarre. It is. Yeah. Um, the uh, the movie, by the way, is uh, I've watched the trailer now, seen a bunch of different trailers because I've been going to the movies. Um, and I think it looks fantastic. I think it looks fantastic. It's Killers of the Flower Moon. That's what I thought. Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, and it's coming out early October and is sure to be like Academy Award nomination and maybe a win and all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, he's also got time to crank out some crap, which is so, essentially what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. I, it always kind of saddens me 
when you see this an iconic actor um look if they have to do it you know that's even sadder sure sure but if they don't have to do it it's like why well what's so sad is what they did with um bruce willis where he was dealing with dementia and they still put him in movies and just gave him simple lines and simple i mean that's so sad yeah that is so sad they finally put a stop to that but that was that was awful uh, on a lighter note, I asked this question today. I'm curious about your answer. Okay. What's the most beautiful place you've ever been? And what's the place you dream of going to? The most beautiful place I've ever been was uh, Santorini, Ia, in oh, Greece. Yeah. Is that right on the edge of the island? Yeah, it is just spectacular you know those iconic pictures of greece when you see the, the white windmills the, well, the white churches and the blue domes and all of that yeah um and the water is just crystal aqua just it's just so breathtakingly beautiful yeah um the one place that i dream of going mm-hmm. um i would love to go on a safari oh yeah nice yeah that'd be fun mm-hmm. you and tom have that in you Oh, totally. Yeah, I'd be great. It'd be great. So the most beautiful place. Actually, I don't know if it's beautiful. It is beautiful. It is beautiful. Um, the pyramids in Egypt, mm. which I just find to be totally staggering and amazing. I mean, when I was there and saw them, I was, I was hardcore yoga at this point in my life. I, I do yoga every day, but I was hardcore yoga at that point. So... To me, there was like some sort of mystical quality of being at the pyramids, uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza. So you can sort of climb the pyramid a little bit. Um, at the base, it's sort of rocky and there's steps sort of at the, at the base of the uh, Great Pyramid of Giza. So I climbed up there and I did a headstand on the Great Pyramid. This picture exists. And uh, I had somebody take a picture of me doing a headstand, a yoga headstand. At the Pyramid of Giza. It was fantastic. And what, what year? How old were you when you did that? Uh, that would have been 2001. So however I old I was in 2000, it was right after we finished the radio show in New York. And I you went to You had to, to get as far away as yes. possible from New York. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, the weird thing about uh, Giza is uh, the pyramids. If you go there, there are so many scammers. It's unbelievable. So I had the worst scam in history when I was at the bathroom in Cairo airport. So I sit down, I'm doing my business. And uh, when I go to reach over for the toilet paper, no toilet paper. And I hear this knock. My good American friend, would you like to buy some toilet paper? I'm like, oh my God. What, do they take the toilet paper out so they can And then try to sell it back to me. Tell me that's not a crazy thing I ever heard. (laughs) That's so crazy. Very clever and actually inexpensive. (laughs) Very, very inexpensive. Yeah. And I I guess the most, the place I dream of going is probably Jerusalem. Hmm. Um, I, you know, crossroads, the three major religions, um, the Wailing Wall, all the the history, the ancient mm-hmm. history of that spot. I've always wanted to go to Jerusalem. Juan is not so interested in going. Oh, and does he not? Well, he likes to travel, though, right? Oh, he loves travel. Yeah, but he wants to go somewhere where we can just lay on a chair. What, is, uh, what does he have against the Jews? What's I, going he's on? nothing against the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> nothing at all. Uh, but we will eventually go. We will okay. eventually. Yeah. So uh, I thought that's we'll actually put that to A. Martinez too. Oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. Um, all right, so uh, our guest today started his career working with me in the early days of Mason in Ireland. He has traveled with and covered the Dodgers. He's done pregame and postgame for the Lakers, and now he is one of the hosts for Morning Edition and Up First for NPR. A. Martinez joins us. A. Thank you very much for doing this. Appreciate it. How you doing, man? Good. How are you? Good. Good. So you don't call, you don't write. Where you been? <laughs> I've been around. I mean, it's just, you know, it's hard because, you know, I see you as like my radio father. So it's very difficult for me as a son to communicate with his father. So there you go. <laughs> there you wow. go. Wow. This is heavy. This is heavy. So let's go back to the nineties. Was that when you were working with 
John and I back in, I don't know, 98, whatever that was. Was that yeah. kind of your first experience in the business? Yeah, it was 1996, I think. That's, that's, uh, yeah, I, I, I'd never been in radio before. I just listened, but I'd never been in radio. I didn't even have any plans on, on actually being in radio. I want to be a news, I want to be a beat writer. I wanted to cover, uh, all, you know, the Dodgers or a baseball team at the major league level as a, as a beat reporter. And I never even thought I'd be in radio. And that's in, in being with you two was the first time I was ever even involved with radio. So when you were working in that era, I've heard stories that I was difficult. What, how difficult was I in the 90s? Hey, I've heard the stories too. Uh, I don't, I, you were difficult with me. Um, but yeah, I, I did hear the stories after the fact, though. I don't know if, uh, if, if uh, it, it took a bit for, for, for you to settle down because some of the stories I heard were kind of funny and amazing, <laughs> kind of like the whole swimming with sharks. Uh, movie dynamic. There was a little bit of that going on. Yeah. yeah. Life changed. Good news. Yeah, I've changed. <laughs> well, A, I wanted to know um, what Steve was like because I worked with Steve on morning radio in New York for a year and a half <laughs> in 99 to 2000. Uh, and um, I was still in my a hole stage. He was total a hole and uh, a different A. He was an a hole. I, I, I wish I'd seen that side, though. I honestly, you know, all kidding aside, I've never seen that side. I never, I personally have never seen that side. I'd heard the stories, but I'd never seen that side. Yeah. So, so it would what, be what, a was revelation he, of me. Was he, was he a micromanager? Was he ADD? Did he have any of those qualities? No, I think, I think Steve knew exactly what he wanted the show to sound like and, and was very particular about what he wanted. And from the people that are there to, and this is like for any radio host and, and you, you know, you both are hosts. So you understand what it's like, you know, you want things to sound a certain way and you need the people that are around you that are there to support you to be on that same page. And I think that's probably where some of those horror stories came from. Yeah. From I, I would say I was demanding. That's what I would say. Demanding. Yeah, there you go. There yeah. you go. <laughs> so, uh, so you did wind up becoming essentially a beat writer. You covered the Dodgers really closely. How did you? How did you get that gig? And describe what that life was like when you were traveling and doing all that Dodger stuff. I always say that most of my career, pretty much all of my career, has been either through the kindness of others or through a lot of luck. So, uh, you know, after being with with you and John as as your board op, I I, I uh, went to uh, be a Kind of a, an up, a weekend update guy at Extra Sports 1150. Remember that place? Steve? Oh, I uh, do. I, I believe I was on there briefly. Yeah, and then the, that place got the Dodger contract, and I'd always been working at night. I, you know, I, I did my updates at night. I had a weekend show also at night too. So there was never anyone around, and because there was never anyone around, I'd always bring my baseball glove with me. Or actually, I have a weighted bat because I was still in those adult baseball leagues. Mm -hmm. And so I'd, I'd be in the hallway swinging my bat or throwing the ball up in the air. And then when we got the Dodger contract, I think it was literally like this. Well, he seems to like baseball. Why don't we have him do the pregame show for the wow. Dodgers? Wow. That's because that's I can't remember asking for the job, wanting the job. Um, I just remember being asked, hey, do you want to do that job? And I think that's probably the reason why, why I got it. The screening process was very tough, apparently. <laughs> so so where did your love of baseball come from since you were a little kid yeah yeah since uh i when my mom married my stepdad um i'd be it's my mom i am you know i grew up in an ecuadorian immigrant household and, and my mom brings home this 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 white hippie from the san Fernando Valley <laughs> into our <laughs> living room and all of a sudden i'm i'm like open up to this big white world of humor or comedy and also baseball i'd never played baseball i never liked it but i know he liked it and i liked him and he watched him on tv so i wanted to be near him while he was watching him so that's where i sort of love baseball through him so you kind of lived that life you lived that baseball life you wound up traveling with the team i always said that's the the one thing that i definitely wouldn't do i don't want to be traveling guy suitcase uh hotel room to hotel room what is that experience like how did you adapt to it we would leave for vero beach florida at, on valentine's day every year um every single year would be right around the same time because pictures and catch would report right around the 16th or 18th of, of february typically around that time um, be there for six weeks. I'd live on the base at Dodger Town. Um, and then when I'd come back, it'd be a week home and a week uh, on the road. 
and, and you're right, Steve, it is, you don't ever really unpack your suitcase um, it, unless you're just doing laundry and anything that's clean in there, it stays there because you're pretty much going to put all the stuff back anyway. Hmm. So you don't really ever really try to, to do more than you have to. And it was, it was not easy. I mean, I, I, I grew up a big Dodger fan. I, I loved them. I, you know, I, I was, you know, right in, I'm ripped in it in the 81 season when they won the championship, also right in it when, when they won in 88. So I was a big fan, but then being with them all the time, every second of the day, I think that kind of life beat the fan out of me a little bit. Mm. Um, Cause I'd always have to do something every day. I'd always have to either do a show or file some kind of report. And we're talking about like 250 straight days from February 14th until the end of the season, whenever that is. So, I mean, sometimes it would be September and I'd be so tired, so burned out missing my family because you'd hardly see them that I almost wish they would lose games. I was like, don't make the playoffs because that's an extra week and a half or two weeks of work. And th I mean, I, that's, that's one of the, the drawbacks, I think, from working that job. It is a dream job, and, I, and it is what I wanted to do when I was a little kid, but it's funny. I didn't know what it would come with once I actually started doing it for a few years. And, and what was the social scene like? I mean, you were hanging out with them as a beat writer, but did you have you know, moments where you go out for a beer or you go out for meals with them, or, was, or were you separate in that respect? No, that was the thing. So because I was embedded with them, I was on the, the team plane. I was in the hotel. I was on the bus. Um, so I was privy to stuff that the, that the riders weren't. Uh, so they saw me as an employee of the team, even though I was an employee of the radio station. So by seeing me as part of the team, you'd get invited to everywhere they went. And, and that particular group of Dodgers, especially in 98, 99, and 2000, they, they, they like going out. Name some names. I'm trying to remember that, that specific era. So, uh, after, so after that, so that was Eric Karros was, uh, in that, uh, in Eric that early, 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 late nineties group right there. That was towards the, the late stages of his, his Dodger career. Um, and then, uh, after that, it was Derek Lowe when he came over from the Boston Red Sox. Um, you also had, uh, Jeff Kent, uh, toward the tail end. So I, I got, he was a very friendly guy, wasn't he? Wasn't Jeff Kent very friendly? He was, he was, he was friendly when he would allow himself to talk to you. Mm. So I, I'd have to get, I'd have to get the, the, the star of the game after every single game. Um, and Jeff Kent did not want to be bothered with that. He even, I, you know, he just didn't like talking in general, but he told me every year, because I think he realized he was very smart about this. He knew what my job was and he knew that eventually he probably hit a home run <laughs> to win a game because he was actually one of the best hitters on the team yeah. and that I'd want to talk to him. But he said, Hey, you've got three of these. So choose them wisely. So I made sure I chose the three times that I got him for the postgame show very wisely. And then when he spoke, he it sounded like he had like a like he's been holding on to things because he would be great, insightful, thoughtful, uh, funny, friendly. I mean, anything you can imagine a, a guest to be on the radio, that's what he would be, which was, goes completely counter to what we thought Jeff Kent was. At least that you know the image he put out there, which is this surly prickly don't talk to me kind of guy it was it was odd uh the way he would turn himself on for the for the microphone did you develop like friendships with any of these guys after you left did you keep no, in touch with anyone no, no no that was yeah once especially a lot of the guys that i was i would say i was friendly with were mostly the players that hardly played um so there was guys i, I used to have to do these things called the injury report and was sponsored by something yeah um so yeah and it was 60 seconds and sometimes there wasn't anything to talk about. So the guys I would go to the most were the guys that were rehabbing injuries, you know, that were on the injured list of back then it was the disabled list. Yeah. And I, you know, they said, they're like, Hey, I feel the same as I felt yesterday. What do you, what do you want to know? I'm like, <laughs> like, like I need, I need 60 seconds. Can you guys, you have me 60 <laughs> seconds, please. And they're like, yeah. So then I come, all right. Um, Hey, Martinez here with Jason Grabowski. Do you remember Jason? <laughs> yeah, I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, so how's the knee feeling today, Jason? And like, well, I did so, you know, so they were always very helpful. But those are the guys I speak to the most because they, no one ever talked to them because they never actually, a lot of times, did anything that anyone would want to talk to them about. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, not, no, you know, they, they have, yeah, to, yeah. They, something has to happen for them to be pursued by, by the hordes of media that come after the game. And a lot of times that's not them. So whenever I did talk to them, it was always something that, hey, I, you know, at least I'm involved. So I think that's why they were appreciative of that. So does your love of, uh, 
basketball. What what do you because you did Lakers pre and post Lakers pre and post yeah for ESPN for sub and ten yeah. Do you have a preference between that? Like, did you like your Dodger days better than your Laker days, or vice versa? The good thing about the Laker days was that it was all at home. I didn't have to travel for that, and I, I did it all from the studio. I, the pregame I did uh, courtside, and then half time I went upstairs to, to ESPN LA to do that. So that was the the great part about that. I I'll admit though, I grew up reading the, the all the the baseball books from the Dodgers, Yankees, and Giants of the, the 40s and 50s. Mm. So I fell in love with that whole idea of being able to travel with a team. So being able to, to be at all these stadiums that I'd read about um, and, and meeting some of the people that are in some of these stories that I'd heard about, that I'd read about too, that was always really cool. My first day at, at Dodger Town in Bureau Beach, uh, 1998, I believe, and I go into the into the cafeteria at Dodger Town, and I, I go through the line, and I have my my plate, and I'm very nervous because I don't know where to sit. There's one table, one big giant circular table that's closest to the dining room entrance, where only Hall of Famers can sit. So wow. I know I'm definitely not sitting there, right? So I try to find the corner, the furthest place away from that table where minor leaguers are sitting, or employees, or you know, just off, you know, Bureau Beach employees are sitting. And I go sit over there and Jaime Harin, the Hall of Fame, Spanish language Dodger broadcaster, walks in. He sits down and he calls me over. He goes, Jorge, Jorge, ven acá, ven acá. And I was like, oh my God. So I take my tray. I'm shaking. My, my, my hands are shaking, right? I sit down and because and you can be at that table if you get invited. So, okay. So it's me and him. Great. You know, I, I'm like, this is a dream. I'm, I'm having, living a dream right now. So next up, they're playing the res that day. Sparky Anderson walks in. And Sparky Anderson sits down next to Jaime because, of course, he's a Hall of Famer. And, of course, where would he sit? Next to the other Hall of Famer, right? Yeah. He, he sits in there. Then Johnny Bench walks in. Wow. After that, you've got Tommy Lasorda who walks in. This is my first day at Dodger Town. And I'm sitting next to Hall of Famers at a table. I'm the only idiot that obviously shouldn't be there. But I, I, I can't believe it. Colfax walks in later. And oh. He has, uh. he has a, a glass of orange juice. I mean, this is my first day in baseball. And I'm sitting at a table stocked with hall of famers wow. it was an incredible experience so that kind of that's kind of those are the kind of memories that i that i'm that i fondly fondly think about when i think about my dodger days so you and i have someone in common i am very good friends with sal lucurdo <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we were talking about you the other day and so who's sal lucurdo oh sorry sal lucurdo um he's is, is he still the program director i know he had he got bumped up at npr He's at NPR now, yeah. Um, um, but but he was essentially the program director at KPCC. Yeah. Okay. So um, I I actually am friends with his wife, who I know since elementary school. Oh wow! So wow. we were talking the other day, and uh, he told me that you are like a sports savant. You know sports history. So when Steve and I years ago, when I I used to do some goofy stuff on, with Steve and John, and I used to come on and do a trivia section, and I have this crazy book from. Um, Bill Mazur, and it was copyrighted in 1981. <laughs> so I would ask questions, but never give a disclaimer that it was as of 1981. Correct. So, oh, some, of, okay. so some of the answers may have been correct, but as far as the book was concerned, <laughs> it wasn't correct. Bill so Mazur was right at the time he wrote it. Exactly. Right. Yes. Yeah, so no. I'm going to ask you a question, oh, and it's no. as of 1981. Okay. And I want you to tell me what's the oldest baseball stadium as of 1981. As of 1981, um, it'd have to be either Wrigley or Fenway, and I'm going to go. I'm going to guess Wrigley. Yes. Is it Fenway? Yeah. It was Comiskey. Oh, Comiskey! Okay. Well, as of 1981. As of 1981, Fenway is the oldest park now. But Comiskey had been there longer than Fenway Park. Yes, as of wow. 1981. According to Bill Mazur. <laughs> Maybe he was crazy. I don't know. Like Bill Mazur. That doesn't sound right. I, <laughs> yeah, I, where, I, what I is going I on with Bill? I hear your skepticism, Steve, because I, I share it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. By the way, the, the whole point of the bit was always, it was, she confused us. She just confused <laughs> us the way she's doing right now. It's an effective bit. There you go. So how did you wind up at? KPCC, because that was an unusual jump. You went from doing Lakers pre and post to 
really the great public radio station in Southern California, KPCC. What, how did that happen? So I was, uh, I, I was in negotiations with ESPN LA for my next contract. Um, and I was also talking with, and I forget if it was either Prime or who was doing the Lakers in Spanish. Cause I was, I was talking to them about being their, their Spanish language sideline reporter mm. um, for the television broadcast. So all this, we were just talking about this and I, I wasn't sure where it was going to go. And then all of a sudden, um, the opportunity came up to, to, to join KPCC. The money was a lot better, uh, mm. that KPCC was offering, um, and I figured, why not? I mean, it, figured, it was so out of the blue that I figured, well, it's it sounds like a great opportunity. The money's better than than what I'd be making if I combined both jobs at ESPN and and, and doing a Lakers sideline in Spanish. Why not? I mean, it seems like you know it's it's radio. How <laughs> how difficult can it be? I've been in radio my whole life, and and when I accepted the job, I had no idea what I was walking into. I mean, it was it was uh, completely a, a big culture shock. That I'll that I'll never ever ever experience in an, in in any other job I take. I think because I'm never going to be that naive ever again. But uh, yeah, I walked into something that was uh, quite quite different than I'd ever experienced. What was the most challenging uh, part of that that shift for you? The two things that were the most challenging, and they're equal. I, I would I would say the, the the first thing is just being up on news, um, on current events and politics, I had been eyeball deep in sports my whole life. I, I never really, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't have been probably been able to tell you who the mayor of Los Angeles was back then. And, mm. you know, cause I just, it wasn't something that I was really into. I, I, I just lived and breathed sports. So getting up to speed on, on news, current events, politics to know who did what, what does what, um, I'll give you an example of how, how far behind I was. So, um, one of my one of my first weeks that I was uh, first days that I was there, I, I walk into the newsroom, and this is at six a.m. and everyone's kind of running around a little bit, and there seems to be a bit of a buzz happening. So uh, you know, I am being overwhelmed because, uh, like I said, this this is one of the things that I was overwhelmed by. I didn't realize what I was walking into, and I, it was you know the the learning curve was very steep for me. And they come to me and say, "Hey, okay, um, we're we're." One of the first things we're going to do on the show today was going to do a profile uh, on, on on someone. So we need you to read up as quickly as possible to get up to speed, and we're going to tape some interviews. And so it's it's the, the, we're going to we're going to talk about Morsi, and you need to know who he is and, and what he what he's doing. I said, okay, okay. So I sit down at my desk and I'm I'm looking up. I said, well, okay, Morsi's got some tour dates. I was looking up Morsi, right? The singer. It was Muhammad Morsi, the Arab Spring. <laughs> That's what they were wanting me to know about. And I'm looking up Morrissey of the Smiths. Yeah. So that's, that's, how, that's how low I was when it comes to being aware of what's going on in the world outside of sports. So that was the first tough part. And then the second part was just the reaction to, to having someone from sports be in public radio. Um, it, was a, it was an avalanche, an avalanche that I wasn't ready. I, didn't re I just thought I was taking a radio job. I was taking a job to host a show. I didn't realize what my hiring was meant to signify, what, what it was about. I was hired as part of a, a grant uh, for, for KPCC um, to diversify their newsroom. I, I didn't know that. Uh, hmm. No one told me. I had no idea what that was. Um, and the, the center part of this grant was to get a Latino or Latina radio host to host a show in Los Angeles because they felt that, that, that uh, it you know, in, in a city like Los Angeles, with so many Spanish speakers and so many bilingual speakers, not to have someone that number one understands Los Angeles and understands it in a way to be a bilingual speaker that they, that this needed to be addressed or rectified. So I was hired with that in mind, and I didn't understand what that meant. That meant that for the people that listen to KPCC, it was like, hey, you haven't been doing enough to think about diversity. In, in terms of what you're listening to and the news you're getting and, and the radio station you support. And I think that touched a nerve because the avalanche came hard and it came, it came very, very When you fast. say the avalanche, what, what did that show up as? Um, uh, who is this guy? Uh, this Neanderthal, this sports Neanderthal is going to tell us about <laughs> current events, about news, about politics. 
Um, what do you mean? It has to be a Latino host. Uh, who is this guy? Is he, I, is he Latino enough? Um, it's something I'd never experienced in my radio career. It was something that I'd never, you know, I race had never been something that I'd ever encountered. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, my brownness for lack of a better word was something that was, you know, in the news, it was in the LA times. It was in the LA weekly. The, one of the first lines that was written about me was, um, uh, my co-host at the time was Madeline Brand. Meet Madeline Brand's swarthy new co-host. Really? I had to look up, had to look up swarthy. It means olive skin. I mean, that, that was one of the first lines that introduced me to the city and to That's public crazy. radio. Yeah. So I, it, it became a thing for a very long time that, number one, I was from sports and, 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 and also my education, too. Like public radio uh, tends to hire, um, and this is probably still true today, they, they tend to hire from the same spots like Annenberg, um, NYU, you know, very prestigious journalism schools. I went to four junior colleges and I went to Cal State Northridge. Right. Um, so my, my, my pedigree was questioned. My level of intelligence was questioned. My college degree was questioned. You name it uh, about me. It was questioned whether I could handle intellectually the job to do this, to do this uh, radio show. Now, were they looking for you to kind of um, speak about the Latin culture and to bring in more Latin Latino listeners? I mean, was that, yeah, that kind was, of part of it? Yeah, that was part of it. I mean, that was I, I think that was the hope was that was that I would be able to do that. Um, I, I don't even know if if they realized KPCC realized um, <laughs> how how at the bottom of the barrel they were screaming when they finally found me. Uh, I think they were they were they needed to hire this host very badly this 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 Latin American host very badly. So I think they probably had to settle on on me because that was the point was to bring in Latino audiences to eventually become members of KPCC so that would eventually they would be able to to donate to KPCC. Yes, that was yes. the whole point. That's the, the way the public radio model works. Um, and public radio even to this day is is mostly older and mostly white. Um, and, and more and more wealthy too. Um, so they wanted to kind of try and, and not only diversify the newsroom, but also diversify the audience and who was listening. And I think they felt that if if they hired a Latino, that that would come. Um, it did come. Um, but I think what they didn't understand is that I was so behind the curve in terms of knowing what stories to bring that it, that took a while for me to understand what they were looking for and what I think the audience was looking for. It, it took quite a long time. And then we had a sh shift in hosts. Uh, so after a few months, we almost had to start from scratch. Um, so it was a challenge. It was a challenge to try and, and bring to KPCC and to their listeners exactly what it seemed like they were wanting. Now, you were not an NPR guy. Like You, you didn't listen to a lot of NPR, did you? Nope, never. I knew that NPR existed. I couldn't have told you a single host's name. I couldn't tell you a single show's name. Um, there was there was nothing about NPR that I had ever listened to. Um, there, there, I was I was as naive and clueless as, as you could possibly be to enter this world. And, and I think that annoyed people. That, that really annoyed people. Um, uh, that was also one of the criticisms I get is that I I didn't understand or know the world and the culture that I was walking into. Um, and I think for KPCC, they kind of liked that though. They kind of liked that I didn't, wasn't a part of that world. I didn't come from that world. And I think they wanted a, a fresh perspective, which is one of the reasons why they probably liked um, uh, what I was bringing at first. But yeah, I mean, people were very upset that, that this guy, this sports guy, I got to stress, it's the fact that I was a sports guy really annoyed a lot of people. Um, that how, how could he understand what this world's about? Um, and I think it took a long, long time for people to warm up to me and actually for me just to understand the world that I was in. You know, it's so funny because when you think about like certain journalists, I mean, so many journalists I know are so sports savvy, you know, like so many, you know, they, they do have that background. Maybe they weren't sportscasters, but they do have that, that, that background. So but what I wanted to ask you, like now, when like a typical day of, of your job, when you're coming up with stories, do you have to run it through, a, you know, your producers? I mean, you have to kind of let them know what, what, what the subject matter of what you want to talk about. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the big difference from sports. I mean, I was doing my sports show at night alone. Um, so whatever I want to talk about, I, I just 
talked about. But in, in this case, uh, there's a pitch process. Um, and as a host, you, you know, you can put your thumb on the scale from time to time. But when you've got a, a, a Zoom room full of 20 to 30 producers, and, and when you give the pitch, if no one's interested, no one's interested. And you're probably not going to get that pitch on the air. Um, so yeah, it, I, I have to come up with a way to sell the pitch to the producer's room to get them kind of bought in so that they'll be as uh, excited about it as, as, as I am. And if the pitch doesn't land in that room, it's probably not one that would make a good radio segment to begin with. So there, hmm. there's like a checks and balances uh, it, uh, when we, when we have our pitch meeting in the morning to try and not only just get content, because that's the one thing they just don't want stuff on morning edition. They want good stuff on morning edition. So it, it has to go through this, through this process where it gets vetted and you get challenged in terms of like, who do you want as a guest? Uh, what are the three central questions? Uh, what do we want to get out of this segment? What's the listener going to get out of this segment? So it's actually, it's actually, it can be frustrating. I'll tell you, it definitely can be frustrating because hosts have egos. And when you bring something up that you think is brilliant and no one else thinks so, you kind of have to either package it again and sell it the next day or sell it later in the day or just give it up. And and sometimes, you know, we don't want to do that. We think, right. why isn't why isn't this as great as I thought it was when I thought of it? So at your show, Morning Edition sounds a lot like Mason in Ireland. Like we've got a team of 30 producers who are coming up <laughs> with material for us. And then I, I pitch stories and they shoot them down. And no, I mean, is that how many producers work on Morning Edition? I mean, I, yeah, it, it's probably around 20 to 30. I mean, depends wow. on, um, but, and they're working at different times of the day. So there's always a team of, of three or four or uh, depending on, on, on what time of the day is that always has a show. We, we have this email, uh, that it's called the pass off email. I never knew something like this existed, but while one team is working on wherever the show is, they'll pass it off at some point to the next team. And that next team will take up the work of the, previous team. In other words, so if, if scripts need to be tightened or edited, or if a guest needs to be confirmed, that team takes it. And round the clock, there's a pass-off team that takes the, the previous you know, bit of work. It's unbelievable. So by the time I wake up and, and I get that last email, the show is pretty much done. It's pretty much hmm. written. Um, the prep is there. It's unbelievable to have this large of a group, but that's, that's kind of the the care that NPR puts in, in their radio shows. I mean, they want to make sure that everything is perfectly tight. It's fact-checked. It's ready to go. I'm, I'm prepped in terms of what the guest might, might say so that I'm ready to counter or to fact-check them as, as quickly as possible. It's unbelievable how prepared that show is before it goes on the air. And you don't, when do you get that? You get that the night before or the morning yeah, so of? For me, I if I'm hosting the show tomorrow, I'd be asleep at one o'clock in the afternoon and I'd wake up around 8.30. Um, I wake up at 8.30 because that last email for me comes out at 8.30. Um, and then I'll, I'll see where the show is and that's pretty much how the show is going to be. And then I start to read in, I start to check out the scripts, I start to check out and, and need anything that I need to, to write. There, there are little parts of the show that that, that hosts are responsible for. Um, if, they're, if they're not uh, part or responsible for a script in a segment as well. So there's a lot of stuff that I check in on right at 830. And then I try to get, you know, a, a workout in or do something, you know, to, to kind of wake myself up. And then by 11 o'clock, I'll drive into NPR West in Culver City and, and basically ready to tighten anything else that needs to be tightened. Maybe if, if it's a, a two-way interview with one of our reporters, maybe I can get on, on Slack or through Zoom with that reporter just to, just to get a sense of like that we're on the same page and nothing's changed with the story that they're reporting on. Um, and then tighten up anything else that needs to be done. And we start pre-production at around 1.30 in the morning. Um, and for me, the show goes live at 2 a.m. Um, so, and, and, and then, you know, for us, we don't really get breaking news. Stuff doesn't really change that much because it's 2 a.m., 5 a.m. on the East Coast. Right. Um, but occasionally things will will shift around depending on guest availability uh, or something that may be brewing. And, 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 and that's when it gets pretty exciting because that's when that, that, that team really shows how well they can think on their feet and, and kind of put their head on a swivel and, and, and change things around. It's amazing what that team is. It helps that there's so many people working on it. So not, there's not one person that has to handle all that. Yeah, that's crazy. So I want to ask you, we don't do any politics on this show. 
okay. on, the, on this podcast. And I don't do any politics on Mason and Ireland. Maybe somewhere in the past, there might have been some politics. Um, <laughs> do you like being in that? Because you, you deal with it, um, both sides, all sides. Uh, do you like being in that in that world? Yeah, and the great thing about it is we don't give our opinion. Um, that's actually turned out to be pretty, pretty perfect for me because since 2012, when I started in public radio, a lot changed for me in terms of how I see the world, um, hmm. and, and how I see politics and how I see how things work, uh, through, through policy. And, and so I've been able to kind of formulate different opinions. Like I'm, I think completely different than I thought in, in 2012 before I started. Um, but luckily for my job, I don't have to give my, and I don't have to, we're not, we're not giving our opinions. We're, right. we're, we're doing our interviews and, and, and we're reporting. Um, I think things would be a lot different if I had to give an opinion, um, because <laughs> there's too many things I've been exposed to now, uh, where I think my opinion might, might get me canceled in certain, in certain ways. Sure. Um, because, so that's, what's great about this job and that we don't have to do that and we can just keep it strictly to what the journalism of NPR is about, which is reporting the story, reporting the news, and then uh, letting our listeners figure out what they want to think about it. Yeah, well, you you can't be biased. I mean, that's the that's the difficult part. That would be the difficult part for me because well, I have such yeah. a strong Yeah, just read about Sue's things. Facebook page. That would be very difficult for her. Well, I, I, I used to post a lot of political stuff. I don't really anymore. <laughs> Because um, I got sick of it, but you know, <laughs> well, see, the thing is, the thing about that though is, is so we're human beings, so we do have a bias. I mean, I, I, it's impossible to exist without one. I think that would make us AI, right? The, the thing that's right. going to replace all of us eventually, right? Yes. But 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 I think so. I think that doesn't, you know, paint a picture of how we do our stories because we're still following the rules of journalism. That's still something that we have to, we still have to kind of adhere to. Um, but I mean, if, if, if you're talking to someone, to a politician who says something racist, it, if you call them out and say it's racist, I don't know, that's not a bias as much as you're just pointing out the fact of what yes. I said. So I, I, you know, that's, that's one of the things in journalism, I think today that, um, that I think a lot of people are struggling with is like exactly, you know, should you allow you know, a bias out. I think we're human beings. We feel compassion. Uh, we feel empathy. Is that showing a bias? You know, it, it's it's not. I think if you're just a human being and know what you're supposed to be doing with that particular piece of media, then I think you'll be able to do your job as well as you're expected to do it. So have you had situations where you called somebody out and they had to defend their their stance? politicians yeah on on what uh -huh. they've said um and how it doesn't uh, match what they've said in the past um or politicians who will sometimes uh say something that is misleading um so i'll have to you know in the moment as as best as i can uh to call them out on on certain things right. uh, it's happened with um, a lot of interviews especially some of the things that are most um that are most hot button, like say immigration. I'll, I'll talk to politicians who, who have said one thing, but then when it comes to voting on a certain piece of legislation, will vote in a completely different way. And and you know, it's, you know, we we have to we have to call them on it. We have to call them out when when they're trying to make a situation uh, a lot more frightening than it really is. I mean, that that's not bias as much as just saying, hey, that's not that's not what's happening. I know what you're trying to do, and I'm calling you out on it live on the air. Um, to me, to, to me, the most frustrating thing when I watch uh, someone on the news is when they're asking somebody a question and the person is dancing around the question and then they say, you, you didn't answer my question. And then they dance around the question and they never answer the question. So how far do, would you push if, if, you, if the person is so blatantly avoiding answering the question? One thing, though, so... I've done that. I've done that a few times where someone is not answering. So then I redirect the question. I won't say you're not answering. I'll mm -hmm. I'll just ask the same question again, um, right away. Now the thing is, is uh, is this a taped interview? If it's a taped interview, I have a lot of time to press that issue. I can do it for as long as they're available to me because it's not live. If it's live, at most our live segments are most are seven minutes long, um, mm -hmm. and and that would be a long 
one for us. So when, when we're bringing on a politician, it's usually about five minutes at the most. So then I got to decide how important is this? And am I hopeful that the listener understands that that person didn't answer the question? Because if you just spend the entire five minutes on one or two questions, then have we served that segment? Have we served the listener? Is there other things that I should have gotten to that my ego wouldn't allow me to get to because that person didn't answer the question? So it's, 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 it's that weird call that you have to make in the moment in terms of how much do you want to push this issue in that moment. Um, I'll do it once in a live, in a live interview, just to, just to like, just so that people understand that, Hey, he didn't answer it or she didn't answer it this time. And I'm going to give him one more chance to answer it. And then hopefully as a listener, you hear that they're avoiding it. And then at least you get that out of that segment. But if it's a taped interview, if it's something that we're taping, I can, I can, <laughs> I can be a jerk about it and just completely just sit on it until they give an answer. Or until I say, hey, okay, so I guess that's not something you want to address right now. And then we'll move on to other things. Mm -hmm. uh, so speaking of really difficult questions, <laughs> how are the Dodgers going to do this year? Oh, I, I've been a Dodger pessimist. over. The I, have, I have too. I think this is not yeah. our year. I'll come out and say it. It's not our year. Braves are too good. <laughs> yeah, Braves are great. They're, 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 yeah, the Braves are too good. I, I think the Dodgers... They have a, a couple of issues and maybe more than a couple on their pitching staff that I don't think are, is going to help them in a short series. Um, and, and then if, if, yeah, if they eventually come up against the Braves, I think, I think that the, the Braves are way too good. They, they, I don't know how they're beating the National League. I, I, yeah. think I, can, I can see a good World Series with the team in the American League with the Braves in the National League, but I, I just don't see them being beaten in the National League. I know yeah. the fans probably at this point um, expect that from me because I always seem to be saying how they're not going to win the World Series. Right. Time. Well, what's interesting is I, I know so many people, so many Dodger fans who are saying, yeah, this isn't our year. Oh, that, wow. Okay. That I think it might be. Like people, <laughs> <it> might be. <laughs> this, this is the year because nobody thinks it's going to be the year. Well, because so then if they win it this year, then can they get that 20? Because everyone likes to say that 2020 didn't count, but it's like it counted. It the absolutely had counted. To do with the schedule and, yeah. and how it turned out. They won the, they won the last game. Uh, of the season, which is World Series. I mean, I don't understand why everyone wants to say the Lakers and Dodgers didn't win their championship in 2020. Yeah, I think they played under very difficult circumstances in both cases. Uh, you know, the, whether it's the bubble or the way you had to travel and the way you had to deal with COVID amongst baseball players, I think it was very, very difficult to get through that season to actually win. So I, I hate that uh, that whole delegitimize the Lakers championship, delegitimize the Dodgers World Series. I just think it's completely unfair and unfounded and not right. And they weren't using trash cans to the best of my recollection. To the best of mine, too. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was 20. That was tw the bad guys in 2017. <laughs> well, listen, A, this is uh this has been great. I, I gotta tell you, I am uh I always take a lot of pride in the fact that um people that we've worked with um, have gone on to do great things. And you are one of the, the great stories, uh, of, in terms of people that I've worked with over the years. I, I'm so proud of you for, for everything that you've accomplished. Um, everything you do on NPR is amazing. And I just think it's an incredible story to go from where you were to where you are now. I, I think it's amazing. So congratulations. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Sue, can, can I just tell you one thing about Steve? You asked me earlier about Steve. <laughs> mm -hmm. Steve. So when we worked at this place called, uh, uh, it was, uh, what was it? In the, in the, in the Fallbrook Mall. That was Fallbrook Mall. Station. Yeah. 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 And I forget, what was that? Where it was, uh, what was the radio station's name? Do you remember, Steve? I, I don't That remember. was the, I think that was 690, right? That was still the mighty 690. 690 was leasing that signal of that radio station in the Fallbrook Mall. Oh yeah, Mall. you're right. KWKW KW or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so what happened is Mason and I, well, the Mason part, went to the CNN building. That's where because we, I guess, six ninety stopped paying rent. Yeah, they didn't want to pay the rent, so they went to the CNN building. And so Steve Mason could have left me back there at that radio station at the Fallbrook Mall, but he didn't. Steve said, "I want a with me in the CNN building." And I'll, I'll, never, I'll always appreciate that because I got to be right there with you and, and John sitting, you know, finally side by side. I was, I don't, I don't really know if I did much for you, but you let me be there. You let me be there. And I think that kind of kept my hunger for radio going because I never had it before. So yeah, I, you know, 
yeah, Steve, Steve's the one that I always credit for just not leaving. You, you didn't leave. You didn't leave a guy behind, Steve. There didn't you leave? Didn't leave you at soldier. the Fallbrook Mall above the hot dog yeah, on a stick. You Brought you there along. You Brought you along. Well, dude, you've done great. It's been amazing to follow your uh, your career, and uh, uh, we you should not be a stranger. We should get together, uh, see each other in person, but. Uh, this is this has been great. We really appreciate you taking uh, a little while to talk to us. I know between your schedule, you probably have to. Are you are you no, on I'm tomorrow? Not that's that's why I could do it today because I'm not hosting tomorrow. Got it, got it. And tell everybody, uh, it's uh, NPR, obviously Morning Edition, and Up First are the two shows that you're involved in, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, definitely, definitely check out A on the radio. He is an unbelievable talent. Um, hey, thank you very much for doing this, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Sue. There you go. There is A. Martinez. And obviously, I go a long way back with that guy. He's he was very- a kid, Sue. He was a kid. Yeah. Well, you know, you did a you did a great thing. And, uh, you know. He, he's all grown up. He is all grown up. And, and, and he's, he's really good. I've listened to the show. Yeah. He's very smart. He's very smart. Very funny. Uh, he's done with politics and current affairs and uh you know international affairs he's done all that the same way he did with sports he he's drilled down on it and he knows it it's really really impressive yeah and Um, it's a tough it's a tough gig sure it is sure it is uh so i want to wrap this up by saying this if you're watching the show thank you if you're listening to the show you can get it on youtube just go to YouTube and search Culture Pop Podcast and you can see the pictures that go along with the words. If you're watching the show, uh, you can listen to it. Go to Apple or Spotify and you can listen to the podcast there. We always, always appreciate when you leave a comment, uh, hopefully a good one, uh, hopefully a nice comment, a five-star review, stuff like that. Uh, and if you do that, um, send us an email, maceandsue at gmail.com and we will send you a very, very... Uh, spiffy. I never use that word. I, I'd like to retract that word. Spiffy. You All like right, that word? Well, spiffy's okay. I mean, what? A swell? Swell. A swell uh, Culture Pop podcast t-shirt. Yeah. Which is both swell and and is also uh, spiffy. Um, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for being out there, Sue Kalinske. It's great to see you again. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop podcast. Mm-hmm.